record. <clears throat> okay, guys, welcome to the Triage Method podcast. Uh, this is a kind of a special edition of the podcast. It's going to be an, an interview or rather a, a chat. So myself, Gary, and I'm here with Kieran O'Regan. Is it Kieran or Kieran? I always say Kieran. Kieran, yeah. There you go. So we keep keep it Irish. So Kieran O'Regan. Um, and basically, we're going to be chatting about a lot of different stuff today. We're kind of going to center it on the most pressing topic of the day, which is COVID-19, or as Kiran would say, the Wuhan virus. Um, and we'll talk about a lot of topics that are kind of related to that and peripherally related to that, because we will try and bring it back to, to fitness and kind of science and scientific thinking and scientific communication and stuff like that. But first of all, Kiran, do you want to introduce yourself and let us know what you do? Uh, so I'm a uh... So work-wise, I'm a sports, I graduated sports science in UL in 2012 and I now work as a strength conditioning coach based in Cork, working primarily with teams in person and then I've been an online coach with Sigma Nutrition for the last couple of years as well, primarily working with fighters, helping fighters with strength and conditioning as well as making weight for fights. And uh, I'm also, uh, that was my background sporting-wise was took up boxing when I was in college and then got into eventually then kickboxing and that kind of crack so um, and then now I'm uh, still working away in Cork and doing the stuff with Sigma bits and pieces of Sigma but pulled that back a bit from so busy because I'm doing a PhD as well I'm doing a professional doctorate uh, through the University of University of Central Lancashire and uh, very fortunate to have the man to make the legend John Coyley as my supervisor so I'm uh, very often getting humbled, <laughs> you know. So, so that's basically what I'm up to. But I'm also, of I suppose, from a in relation to just the general geopolitical, I don't know what you call it, socio-economic, global politics, whatever that area is, along with the interaction of human psychology, human behavior, all that the way that all that interacts. I've, I've and philosophy and just the, the, the complexity of the human experience I've been fascinated with to pretty much as long as I can remember. And uh, so I suppose with this this virus crack, it's it's it was of interest initially from a I suppose a political, psychological, philosophical philosophical perspective and then it wasn't until a few weeks ago that the, a couple of weeks ago that the, the realities of this situation from a virology, epidemiology, rocking up on your front door perspective was mm-hmm. kind of because of a lot of cognitive biases and fallacies that I'm that I, I'm sure we want to end up discussing based on what we're chatting about already. So um yeah, that's that's my background. I don't know how, how much that clarifies it, but no, no, that's that's perfect. And uh, the people who are watching the video will have noticed that for about the first uh, 30% of your introduction, you were actually holding a knife with a swastika on it, <laughs> swinging around the screen. <laughs> so I think that's yeah. as much of an introduction as you're really going to get to this fella. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I'm not a fucking Nazi. No. It's precisely for that reason that I have, I, this is my paperweight for my book, my books or my notebooks. And I just have a habit of when I'm watching videos or when I'm, if I'm even on a call or whatever, I just kind of twiddle with it and fiddle with it. And, you know, but, uh, so it's, I'm, not, I'm not by any means advocating uh, <laughs> national socialism. 
absolutely not um but yeah like basically the reason that we that we kind of wanted to have this chat was because i think both of us have taken like a, a somewhat of a peripheral interest in this topic um not necessarily from the perspective of trying to put out public health advice but trying to maybe combat some of the thought viruses if you will that can get in the way of people realizing the actual gravity of this situation because i think one of the things that's very clear from the last few weeks as it relates to social media is that a lot of people do rely on kind of decentralized sources of information when it comes to actually building their understanding of the world because most people i like at least i know a lot of people my age like they're not sitting down watching rte news in the evening they're not going on to the world health organization and checking for reliable information or the cdc or any of these um sort of reliable you know institutions like you can get very reliable information from these institutions um and my general advice would be absolutely do take everything the world health organization says during this time into account and that should be your go-to so the purpose of this conversation isn't necessarily to give you any sort of medical advice or public health advice absolutely not all of that is there you know i mean the the government put have put out fantastic guidelines for people in terms of what they've been doing i think everyone can do a better job of trying to follow those but rather the purpose of this conversation is to try and recognize you know where where things have kind of uh fallen apart from people from what we've seen on social media and what have been the barriers so the first thing that we kind of wanted to to bring up was why the communication of numbers has failed in the lead up to this uh, pandemic because basically this has been more or less on the radar of the media since january and i remember at the i think it was january 21st or january 22nd I started to see a big flood of people on Twitter, especially like public health representatives for different newspapers and organizations such as Vox. I remember Vox.com, their representative, Julia something. She's from the University of Toronto, I believe. And one of the things that she tweeted on the 21st of January, I think it was, was that, you know, there's been 666 cases and something like 27 deaths. So this was very much when it was contained or at least seemed to be contained in Wuhan, China. And at this time, everyone was basically saying, like the vast majority of public intellectuals were saying, were turning around and saying, oh, this is ridiculous to be worried about more people get killed by X, Y, Z. Why aren't we worried about cancer? Why aren't we worried about diabetes? And that was the first time I kind of woke up to this situation and posted, you know, a couple of stories saying, you know, this is ridiculous. This is not how you should be approaching risk. This is not how we understand risk. And I remember tagging like, Nassim Taleb, who we both, you know, would be fans of, especially as it relates to risk. Um, and I remember tagging him on, I think, the 22nd of January or something, wondering when he was going to get on this, because I was like, we need people like Taleb and other actual risk experts to come out and speak about this. And then it was on the 26th of January when they started, when they actually published their kind of initial paper on um, systemic risk with novel pathogens such as the coronavirus. And from then on, you know, it was when I was kind of following all of this on Twitter, I remember people like Taleb, Joe Norman, um, I can't remember his full name, Yuman Yearman, a lot of other people who would be associated with the, the real world risk institute in the New England Complex uh, Sciences Institute. I was following a lot of those people on Twitter and watching them basically trying to have to fight off all these public intellectuals who just did not seem to get the difference in this type of risk versus the risk associated with normal non-communicable diseases, obesity, and things like that. So that has been really interesting from the start. So 
from your perspective, like, what do you think are some of the reasons that people kind of did not grasp this? Or from your perspective, what led to you kind of realizing the gravity of this situation? Um, I suppose in, in, in retrospect, I may have been, even though I've been, sub, I've been fascinated with Taleb's writing for years, and like the first book I read of his was The Black Swan, which is one of the most important books. That it's, it's one of the books that like, I think uh, Tyler Cohen calls them quake books which are like books that you read that genuinely put an earthquake through the way, mm. through the foundations of the way that you view the world. Like, and, and the black swan is one of those. And in the black swan, so even though, so before I skip, I'll ad, I, I admit my own situation, I don't even admit, but just elaborate upon because I'm, I suppose if I was to lay it out from a foundational perspective, all any of us can ever do in any situation is use the information we have had in the past and had access to and assimilated that have formed our metacognitive toolkit based on concept understanding, based on historical events, based on um, attitudes of other people and all that. And then all that gets processed in, loaded in, in, in whatever way. And then that's used to, to take in new information, process it using the filter that's already there, and then make predictions about the future. So that's all we can ever do. It's all we're ever doing, basically. Is we're, we're basically constantly making these predictions based on what we've already experienced, taking in new information and generating a prediction about the future. And even though I was, even though I was fascinated with Taleb, read his books, and listened to countless interviews with him and all that, lectures, and fascinated with complex systems theory, and um, I still didn't grasp the reality of this and from a from a showing up at your front door perspective until about two weeks ago mm. and that's when it, it was about it was, it was actually about two weeks ago it was about monday monday two weeks ago so this day was it yesterday two weeks ago is when it i think because it was a, it was a chat with a mate of mine who was living in london and we ended up talking about this in detail and then it was a kind of hit me as like because we were talking about what was going on in italy and abroad and and and, and prior to that my um viewpoints had been very much my, my, my interest in it as i mentioned in a, a few minutes ago were largely based around the kind of psychological philosophical from the from like a psychological philosophical economic political perspective around how the chinese government were suppressing freedom of expression and passage of information in china in relation to this but it, was, it wasn't in relate with, with the realities of the virus and from a virology epidemiology perspective and all that didn't really hit me because my bias at the time was very much since I've been fascinated with Chinese politics since last, early last year, since February or March last, maybe, well, maybe about April last year is when I really started looking into it. And, um, and because, I've been, because I've had a long time interest in dictatorships and the, the realities of dictatorships and living within a dictatorship and the way and the ways that dictatorships need to behave to maintain a dictatorship. So I've been fascinated with this for years, and um, but particularly in China since yeah last or maybe this maybe around this time or April last year. And anyway, so then when I came across this COVID stuff, it was in specific relation. To, I think it might have been late January, early February. I heard about it just on the media and passing. Never really took much interest until I came across articles and 
um, news about Dr. Li Wen Liang, the, that 30, who died from the virus at only 34 years old, a doctor in Wuhan who died, I think, on the 7th of February. And when I heard about the suppression of him and the other whistleblowers who tried to let the world know weeks before about this, that's when my interest really peaked. But again, it was like that political, philosophical dictatorship perspective that I got interested in. It. And it was around, look, this is what dictatorships need to do to maintain their positions of power. And that just kind of it fit already a lot of my, it's a lot of confirmation bias because just from a, a slight tangent, in a dictator, what differentiates a dictatorship from a democracy in a very simple sense is whether or not you need to remove violence. You need to use violence to remove political leaders. So if you live in a democracy, you can use ballot papers. If you live in a dictatorship and you're trying to get rid of an unwilling government, then your only choice is bullet shells. That's basically it. Like that's a Karl Popper. Like I know you're, you're saw on Instagram a couple of days ago, or maybe recently, like you're reading an open society and its enemies. So Popper basically defines like, well, what a democracy is essentially is it's, a, it's a, an institution grounded in the rule of law that allows us to remove political leaders without bloodshed. So, and that's basically a way of, China calls itself a socialist democracy, but it's, it's, in reality, it's neither. You know, it's a dictatorship run by the Chinese Communist Party, where the people of, of China can't get rid of Xi Jinping or any of the Communist Party leaders using ballot paper. It's like they can't, they have their only choice if they decide that they really want to get rid of them and Xi Jinping and all his mates won't go, but they have to use violence. Think about how horrific, how horrific that situation is. Like, imagine, like we, we had a, like democracy is by far imperfect. It's not perfect. It's, it's, it's what's that Winston Churchill quote. It's like democracy, imperfect though it is, is the best, worst option we have. You know, something like that. But it's still, but it allows us at least some kind of error correction. And what, again, what maybe got me interested in this deeply is my interest in science because both science and democracy, what they share in common is inbuilt systematic error correcting machinery. So it assumes both science, the scientific method, and a functioning democracy grounded in rule of law in which we can remove political leaders without violence are based on the assumption that we will be wrong but allows us to correct our errors. So like uh, science, it's obviously based on the only certainty is uncertainty and you go from there that we're going to be continually wrong but hopefully we'll get less wrong. Democracy is based on the assumption when it's working, it's based on the assumption that we're going to assume that no one we elect or gets elected will be competent or benevolent. You assume that incompetent, malevolent idiots will reach power politically and then we have a system set up so that we can get rid of them without allowing them to do as much harm but while minimizing the harm that they can get done. And then, that, then the incentive structure then takes, allows you to take advantage of the greed of those politicians by at least if, they're, if you assume they're malevolent and incompetent, then you can go from there and go, well, and their incentive structure then is to behave in such a way, even if they're evil and idiotic, their incentive to maintain, to keep getting votes is to behave in a way that's going to be favorable for the people because they want to get votes. So then there's, an, there's, like a, there's, a, there's a constant tug, push-pull there, kind of a, a balancing act. Whereas, so you can essentially weaponize greed against them. And that isn't to say that all politicians are malevolent idiots. But if you assume that they are, then the best option we have is a system in which we can systematically remove them without needing to kill anyone. 
or use Molotov cocktails. You know what I mean? So that's why democracy, that's why democracy works. Whereas in China, that isn't the fucking case. And there's people that are being suppressed. So for example, this guy, Lee, Dr. Lee Wen Liang, um, I know this is a tangent and it's kind of in relation to your question, but I think it's, a, Zero it's, it. it's of unbelievable interest. And I think not enough people realize this, is that like Dr. Lee Wen Liang and a load of other whistleblowers were trying to let the world know about this, but Dr. Wen Liang in, in particular, or Dr. Lee, he himself was, when he tried to blow the whistle, they, because they monitor everything, like they don't have apps, they don't legally, they're not, they don't use, they have to use VPNs to use other apps in China. They have to block their, they have to use, their, um, they have to use VPNs to be able to use outside networks to be able to get access to apps like we have. So they have things like WeChat, in which the government monitor everything. So they're, they're constantly keeping an eye. It's like a 1984 shit. They're watching everything all the time. And they essentially, when this guy, Dr. Lee, uh, when he tried to raise the alarm, they basically, the police took him in, forced him to sign a confession that he was spreading misinformation, essentially. I can't remember the exact wording. Sent him back to work. Didn't, and then kept doing that to other whistleblowers. And he, at 34 years old, in, in, in Wuhan, ended up dying from the virus. So the reason, like you mentioned earlier on, that I want to call this the Wuhan virus, specifically in solidarity with the people of China against the dictatorship, not so, and, it, and, it, and it's not even, and it may not even be the specific individual, if you assume even within the dictatorship, if you assume within that dictatorship structure that each individual person is trying to do the best for them and their family, it's the, the emergent property is still uh, oppressive dictatorship because of the way the institution is set up, disincentivizes noble behavior so like it, it, because the idea because the political party can't get removed with ballot paper they are only and, and because of violence is the only option to get rid of them for the chinese populace the only they, they, they need to behave in such a way that they neither appear uh, incompetent or malevolent so they can't from a propaganda perspective from a spreading of information perspective to their own population they can't look incompetent or malevolent and they can't look weak because if they look incompetent and or malevolent, then the population will get angry. And if they look weak, it increases the probabilities that the, that the people will strike against the government and there'll be a whole load of revealed preferences. So like the revealed preference theory where, like it happened at the end of the Soviet Union, is, or actually it happened here in Ireland even as an example of like, it happened in Ireland when that, when that big scandal broke around the, the bishop who was using church money to keep his girlfriend and kid Remember that, that happened in, I think it was, in, it was in the 90s, and this kind of blew up. And all of a sudden, there was a load of revealed preferences where everyone, prior to that, everyone was afraid to talk about the church openly in a negative way because everyone thought that everyone else loved the church. But then as soon as there was a little rumble of a little bit of a dissatisfaction with the church, then we start going, you, you whisper a little bit, crack a little joke or say something, and all of a sudden, I realized, okay, he, think, he might think what I think, and I crack a little joke, I say something, you say something, I say something, and it goes back and forth. And before you know it, everyone is like, fuck the Catholic Church, fuck, there's no, and that's, that happens once it volleys back and forth, and there's a whole load of revealed preferences. And it's the same crack in East Germany, let's say, with the fall of the, German, the wall, because the Stasi, the East German secret police, like four, like one out of every five people was an informant, no one was criticizing Oh, when I say no one, I mean the vast majority of people apparently weren't criticizing the government and all that. But all of a sudden, once there was ripples that this might be coming to an end, everyone's trying to walk through into West Germany. So, because no, everyone's keeping their preference. So, um, so anyway, essentially, 
So they, if you're a dictatorship, that's what they need to do. So they need to disincentivize this stuff. And then now there's legitimate, this isn't, this sounds like some tinfoil hat conspiracy theory shit, but there's like, not only are there newspaper, loads of newspaper articles, like I have, I showed you a cutting before recording there from a February 8th article I have from the Times, as well, like, there's like, there was a Lancet article published on the 5th of uh, March, I think it was the 5th, I think it was the 5th of March at Lancet article that were like saying that there's cases as early as November 17th or the third, that third week in November for this virus that were kept on the hush from Chinese records. There's like, and uh, this, this, this is, this is, so essentially, first and foremost, the reason we're in such a shit show is because China is a dictatorship and not a democracy. So I, I'm after fucking going way off on a tangent. But um, so anyway, I wanted to lay it out because I'm an event about that. Yeah. And I'm actually, so, uh, so the next, with regards to your question, so that was my own interest and in where we're at now and all that. So kind of, I bring it back a little bit, I rein it in. But uh, before I start sweating, because I'm fucking getting hyped here. Like, um, <laughs> So, but in relation to the, so the, the actual, the cognitive biases, so in relation to predicting the future, I think I was subject to a lot of the same cognitive biases and fallacies that the rest of the people are, which is that, so if, if we're only able to use information that we've had access to before, that we've processed, assimilated, developed this filter, that now becomes a filter for interpreting new information, and that's constantly getting changed on an iterative basis. That's like a, a prediction machinery, let's say. That's why we interpret the world. Take in information, use previous information, generate predictions, iterative basis. Then I think very strong pieces, very heavy, let's say, in terms of data, in terms of data that's very heavily weighted, that would have been in the back of my mind, unknown to me, were that we've, I remember multiple occasions where there's been outbreaks of stuff in the past that never really affected me. So there was the foot and mouth, which I remember from when I was in primary school, and the only thing I really remember from that is walking across these mats covered yeah. in fluid going into the primary school. Remember that shit? Yeah, I remember going into, going into Kennedy's farm and Ross Castle in Killarney and you'd either have to walk across the mat with all the fucking uh, cleaner in it or disinfectant or else you'd have to put your feet in a bucket. <laughs> yeah, 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 precisely. So like, I, that's, that's my only memory from that situation. Yeah. But like, and then there was the... There was the, I remember the SARS outbreak. I think I just started, I think I was just in secondary school at that stage. And then I remember the first SARS outbreak, the, the, the SARS-CoV one from 2003. And I remember the H1N1 swine flu situation. And then there was the Zika thing from a couple of years ago and all these things. And because they were within my own lifetime and my own experience, they were heavily pieces, they were heavily weighted pieces of information that were massively distorting my bias, and because I didn't have a massive interest in virology, epidemiology, um, that this was distorting it. But I suppose what then led me to realize the way to this is once I actually started looking at the numbers, and it was a result of exposure that I've had to Nassim Taleb, and even without seeing his tweets, it, it was like you were posting up great stuff about it for ages. But then when I actually looked at it, I realized that this is this, this is, so Nassim Taleb has this concept. So I suppose what I'm saying is, even though I've had exposure to the theory behind some of this stuff from a general non-virology, non-epidemiology perspective, the react, that I wasn't able to translate that across to this situation because I had a lack of knowledge, specifically in relation to this situation, but more generally in relation to virology, epidemiology, and all that stuff. But it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago when I started digging into, like after I chat my mate, and then started digging into the actual numbers and 
the realities of this and then going down the rabbit hole a bit further, I realized the kind of the, the enormity of the situation. And Taleb has these two concepts of, uh, or this way of describing situations around like um, mediocristan and extremistan. Mm-hmm. These two different worlds, let's say. So like something like probably, like an, and he uses an inscription as let's say something like a job. So let's say I'm a nurse. There's only so many, I can only scale my work or a doctor who works in person with some people. We can only scale, let's say, our work up to a certain amount of patients within a day, physically. But if, if I'm an app developer, I can come up with an app. And as long as there's enough soft, uh, hardware infrastructure to deal with the software manage, um, management, that can scale out exponentially, massively. So because you get the app, you tell me about it, I get it, I tell another five people about it, they get it, they tell five people and so on and so on, whatever, and it grows exponentially. And there's, it can scale, and that's, that's extremist then. Whereas a nurse who, develop, who works with patients in person, they operate in a world called mediocristan because they can only scale their work up to this. So that, that concept of mediocristan might have, and extremistan might apply to this as it relates to things like, um, let's say, cardiovascular disease, um, car crashes, these previous things that people were comparing this to are more kind of in that mediocristan realm because they're not something that can scale in this exponential way to the same extent um, as this virus, whereas this virus lives in extremistan because of the network spread. So it can, it can scale like an app, like just everyone all of a sudden gets into new app and then all of a sudden like fucking whatever people are using now, TikTok or whatever, you know, just fucking scale. I don't have no idea how popular it is. I only learned about it fucking last week. But, um, <laughs> I just, it's the only new one that popped into my mind, but I think that's why, and, and the awareness of that, and the awareness of how exponential growth curves actually work, and then seeing the data, seeing the growth curve, growth factors, and that's when it was like, oh shit, like we're in the long fucking haul here. Like, this is, this is a legit, this is, this isn't some passing two week job, month job, we'll get it under, under control. Like this is all, it, we're, we're in this for the long haul. This is, this is a few months to a year, year and a half, who knows? We don't know like until until there's sufficient antivirals. Like it's gonna be the primary means of dealing with this from what the medical pros are saying is like just non-pharmaceutical interventions is what we have to rely on because there aren't pharmaceutical interventions in terms of uh, sufficient antivirals and vaccines to, d- to generate herd immunity and immunity to, to, to it. But, um, so I suppose it's the cognitive bias, the, the biases and the fallacies that I that are that I was subject to. Even though I was aware of these concepts in a in a domain general way, I didn't apply them in a domain specific way because there was past events in my own life, like the, the H1N1, SARS, foot and mouth, this suit, this whatever Zika thing, that because they had no impact on me, that it didn't maybe that helped to in an unconscious way mitigate any alarm that was raised from a theoretical perspective. So I think that's kind of a way of and also, another bias, I think a major piece of evidence as well that fits in is the lack of worry from, or the lack of worry from a governmental perspective, the lack of information about it from the HSC, the lack of information about it up, up to a few weeks ago, the lack of info about it from the HSC, from the politicians in Ireland, from people that you'd assume would be steering the ship here and keeping an eye on things and keeping a finger on the pulse of what's going on and letting us know if there was anything to worry about. But there just wasn't anything. 
and now all of a sudden they cancelled the, the paddy day parade. But I don't know. I, I don't know what other steps were taken apart from the, the paddy day parade and the Italian rugby match. But then allowing still people to travel to and from, and I know of a lot of people that were allowed that were flying to and from Italy for fucking holidays and going skiing and shit. And then tens of thousands of people going to Cheltenham and all this only fucking last week. And it seemed like, are we, and because of that lack of action on their side of things, other than canceling a fucking rugby match and a parade and do nothing else, essentially, I was like, am I fucking missing something here? Am I, am I just going, are me and Gary and there's other people that are worried about this? Are we off the mark here? Because the people that are supposed to be steering the ship seem to not really be taking much action, you know? But, and that also fed into me initially thinking, what's the, you know, like not taking it as seriously as it could have. So I think they're the kind of logical fallacies and cognitive biases that I, the journey that I went on, if I was to try and retrospectively explain it, and I'd imagine it's something like that, but maybe even way, let's say, worse, because maybe there's people who still don't understand what exponential growth is. They still don't understand even concepts on extremist and mediocristan, even even without using that language, yeah. even the awareness of how network spread works from a, 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 a an exponential perspective that they don't realize. So I think it's like the, the biases that I went through, the biases and the fallacies that I had, but then maybe amplified by X number, or let's say in terms of severity, because it, because other people maybe not don't have that theoretical understanding that I happen to have been exposed to, that like that are that are part of mine and yours because of the books we've read and the the concepts we've been exposed to mathematically that we have this toolkit already. So maybe that's how we were able to you much sooner than me in terms of the realities of this from a virality epidemiology perspective, and then I think that's what allowed us to maybe see it the risks of what was going on much sooner. And you, obviously you, you in particular, because you're spreading the word about this way sooner than I was, way sooner, weeks and weeks before. So I think I was just looking at it again from like a fuck the communist perspective. I wasn't looking at it from a, <laughs> I wasn't looking at it from like a, a, a reality of showing up at your front door perspective like you were. But um, I think, I think it's that kind of thing that was at play. And what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, like I think like that's the point I want to make clear as well, like because like one of the things that I was kind of the way I was approaching this from the start, like was like when I was when I would put up a story, I'd be like, you know, look at this idiot, but or or this is idiotic thinking. But trying to make like the point I really want to reinforce is that I know that that would have been me. Like I know that for a fact. Like like yeah. that, and that's that's the, the the thing that annoys me, and that's yeah. the reason that things like this would kind of get to me more than they would um otherwise it's because i see 2017 gary uh posting you know thinking oh there's more people killed by ladders every year than this you know because (laughs) like and i that that's the thing i'm like i know that 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 would have been me like and had i not and like you said about kind of quake books like had i not read taleb's inserto like, had I not read all the books in that, in particular, relevant to this, probably The Black Swan, had I not read those, I know that I would be that person. And that, that's, what, that's what kind of scared me. It's because you can actually think you're quite clever. Like, you, can, you, yeah. could, ha- you could even have content expertise um, in medicine and still not get it. Because yeah. your, your personal decisions um, in terms of like treating patients, for example, are not actually dependent on understanding systemic risks. Like you don't need to understand exponential growth. Um, so even if you yeah. are, because I even saw information from 
like general practitioners and doctors and everything putting out information um, on the radio, for example, on the TV, on Twitter, saying that people are totally unreasonable to be worrying about this. And while they have fantastic mm -hmm. content expertise, they were not able to generalize it. And that's why I, I kind of, it kind of got to me because I was like, Jesus, you know, I know that this would have been me and I would have been that idiot. So if you're listening to this or you've come across of any of the stuff that, that I've put out or that Kieran's put out or anyone else has put out um, the last couple of weeks, like the key point is that, you know, you're not, you're not alone in thinking incorrectly about this. And the point is that it's actually difficult to understand this stuff and the, like exponential growth versus linear growth and also the presence of uncertainty make this a very unique situation. And I think there's a lot of parallels that can be brought into your life from this that could actually improve your ability to think critically and to think scientifically. So the, the, like the, the first thing there being that exponential versus linear growth, like and the question that a lot of people use to try and um, illustrate this, it's often in kind of like IQ tests or those tests you do online, like how intelligent are you? Um, it's like, you know, if a, if a small square on a field or in a lake um, doubles in size every day and fills the whole field on the 30th day, like how much of the field is filled on the 29th day? And everyone's like, oh, how do you answer that? And it's just half. Like it's just a half the field and then suddenly the whole field because it's increasing by an exponent as opposed to increasing by a single factor. And that's the case with, with COVID-19 is that cases are not increasing by 100 today, 100 tomorrow, 100 the day after, 100 the day after. Like yeah. currently in Ireland, it's estimated to be roughly 130% or 1.3 times yeah. number of cases. So as the, the last two days, yeah. Yeah. So as the cases increase, again, the rate continues to increase and it just basically just takes off. And the point there being that this, that's not intuitive. It's difficult to understand that stuff. And without having had prior exposure to maybe you did maths and you understand exponents, or maybe you have content expertise in virology and you understand how these things spread um, or what the, the, the R0 factor for viruses, like what that actually means. I wouldn't blame anyone for not getting it. Um, yes, lots of like, you know, supposed experts and public intellectuals, they didn't get it. So for the average person, I wouldn't expect them to get it either. And as yeah. I said, had I not had this exposure to probably like, you, had I not come across Nassim Taleb, like specifically, I probably wouldn't get it. Like I probably wouldn't yeah. have, because again, it was one of those kind of quake moments. Like, um, so that's probably... I think the first lesson there that this is not supposed to be intuitive. And if I was to give people a lesson going forward, it would be to look out for these types of events. And when you do see people downplaying numbers where other people are kind of, you know, shouting, saying that this is a problem, ask yourself if there's something that you might be missing, because in this case, like there actually was and simple numerical analysis and trying to be quote unquote evidence-based was not actually the answer because often what people try to rely on when they think about being evidence-based is that they look at the evidence that is available and try to make decisions. Whereas this is actually a very unique decision. And Dr. Michael Ryan, who I think we should be very proud. He's an Irish man. He's basically the, like the, one of the leaders of the World Health Organization's initiative as it relates to this. One of the things he said is that like basically, I think to paraphrase him, if you wait for evidence here, if you want to wait to meet for certainty like you'll be dead basically like you will lose you will not win because yeah. you we, you have incomplete information here this is the presence of uncertainty and acting yeah. in the presence of uncertainty actually requires you to overreact or to 
be extra precautionary or as Taleb would say, apply the precautionary principle and to basically overdo your actions because you would much rather be wrong in retrospect and maybe, all right, there's some economic effects, but everyone's yeah. alive than to be um, basically not act and like did, you know, not ideal. Yeah, 100%. And like an example is a, a Taleb phrase in one of his books in The Skin in the Game. He uses the very first page. So this is a, this is an example. I couldn't agree. Actually, in relation to the exponential growth, I think this might. So I, I did a video that I send it to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So an example. So I did a video. I put it up on YouTube Monday, um, and the the link will be on my Instagram bio too. If anyone wanted to see it, it's like six seven minutes long, but it, it explains kind of the exponential growth and how it works. But I use two different data sets. One data set using four days of um, case confirmations in Ireland. Another data set using case confirmations in the globe minus China, which, are, which is important because China had such an initial peak. And also because, again, incentive structure-wise, I can't put much faith in the Chinese systems numbers reported because who fucking knows what actually happened there? So I can't rely on Anyway, without going back into that rabbit hole again, right? So... So like the average for Ireland, let's say, this is an example of how it works. So like I was even talking to a very smart person yesterday who, who was saying that, oh yeah, the cases, it looks pretty bad here. Like the cases are increasing like 20 to 30% every day. And I was like, no, they're multiplying by 1.3 plus, which is way different than increasing. A 20, 20 to 30% increase every day, is, it, it, that's predictable. That's, that's, like, that's, like a, that's not an exponential growth curve. That's a totally different thing. So an example of how this works is, so like using those four numbers, to, of, let's say just, just using the Irish data, let's say, from the 11th to the 14th, the average exponential growth factor across each of those three or four days, so it was three jumps, let's say, was uh, 1.44 across those three days. And then the last two days for the 15th, it was 1.31, was the jump from the 14th to the 15th. And then from the 16th, 15th to the 16th, was another 1.31 growth factor jump. So it was 1.62 from the 11th to the 12th, 1.28 from the 13th to the 14th, 1.43 from the 13th to the 14th, 1.31, 14 to 15, and then 15 to 16, 1.31 again. So if I just, if I took that, let's say, if I took that average of 1.44, and if you plot that out, starting with the 14th, so with 129 people had it on, let's say, the 14th, confirmed cases. If I, if I took 129 people at a growth factor of 1.44, which thankfully the last two days has been lower, I don't know if that's a, just a remnant of the, the test itself. The amount of testing that's been done, I don't know. That means that by next Sunday, or this Sunday coming, there'll be 1,656 cases in Ireland. And then the Sunday after that, there'll be 21,264 cases confirmed. But obviously, the real world isn't a mathematical model. And, there's, and, it, and it depends on how much testing is done. Like, say, for example, South Korea has done more testing per populace than anyone, I'm pretty sure. And they've caught so many people that are asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic carriers, and they've caught, they've done correct, so they, they have a way lower, lower death rate and all that, so it's not, it's not comparable. But for the globe minus China data, even if we, that's more conservative, that means that if they had a 1.18 growth curve across the same four days exponentially. So even if I took 129 people from, say, let's say the 14th, which are the confirmed cases, drag it out across seven days using the growth factor for the rest of the world minus China, that puts us this Sunday coming at 410 cases. But so far, we've been operating at higher than 1.18. We've been operating at 1.31 1 
for the last two days. So it could be even higher in terms of, again, if there's the same proportionate testing, let's say. That means that two weeks, we're looking at 1,500 cases. Two weeks after that, it's probably about closer to 15,000 cases. Because um, it gets about 10 times worse every, every two weeks-ish, the way that this virus looks to be spreading in a, in a population. So that's an example of how it's multiples, and it's each day gets multiple of the previous one, not addition of 20 or 30%. It's a totally different thing. So as you said, this isn't an easy thing to grasp because it's not an intuitive. This isn't built into our, our automatic interpretations of living in everyday life. This is totally outside of that, the way that this stuff um, spreads. Um, and with regards to acting now, um, an example, I suppose, use an example of the UK. So in, in Skin in the Game, in the very first page, is a great, Taleb has a great line where he basically says that in academia, there is no difference between academia and the real world. But in the real world, there is. And I think that's what's going on in, in the UK, is they're using what Taleb calls an intellectual yet idiot approach which is they're using theory, ignoring what's actually practically going on by clinical, by practitioners around the world. They're, but they're using theory to guide practice rather than, as, as you said, a situation like um, that, uh, Dr. Michael Ryan was saying, that we need to act fast, not, we can't wait for perfection. They're using a theory based on a theoretical perfection out for perfect outcome to, 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 to guide their practice rather than looking at what's actually being done by practitioners on the ground. So they're, they're essentially, the equivalent in the UK is that they're using, they're using porn videos to give sex education, essentially to, to guide sex education practice. Like they're using, they're, they're not, they're totally detached from the real world. They're not operating at a different, at the same level at all. And I, my fear is with the UK, that they're going to, that the UK government, not the people, but the UK government, that the people are going to suffer because of arrogance within the government and within the intellectuals, the intellectual yet idiots, to use Taleb's phrase, that he specifically calls the, the UK government decision with an IYI decision, one of his phrases. My fear that the population are going to suffer because the government are going to be subject to sunk cost fallacy and that they'll keep rocking because they've invested in this idea already and they're going to be stubborn enough to keep rolling and that they're going to take, that they're they're going to be taking this, they're going to stick with it because they can't admit they fucked up massively in the initial stages and that they won't admit they're wrong and that they'll just keep rolling this out. And as a result, there's going to be massive amounts of the, 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 the curve in the UK, that growth curve is going to be very short and enormous. And as a result, way higher death rates, like way higher needless, massive amounts of needless suffering in death as a result of the, the health system getting over massively overburdened way past capacity in a very short period of time. And my, and that my fear is that the American, that I hope fingers crossed that they realize the error that they've likely made. Of course they could turn out to be way smarter than everyone. and know something that we don't, but given the information we do have in terms of evidence, which even from an evidence-based practice perspective, from a typical evidence-based view, Think about what evidence-based and evidence-based practice is. It's guided by the three-legged stool, where one leg of the stool is the existing empirical data or theory. The other, uh, uh, the other leg of the stool is clinical practitioner expertise. And then the other leg of the stool, the third leg of the stool is the individual circumstances at play, which at an individual level is the, 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 the situation with the patient or, or from a medical perspective or 
with a client from a coaching perspective. But from this big picture, the individual at play is the state of the society and what's actually going on on the ground. That's the, that's, and then you use all three sources of information. And then the clinical expertise stool, in terms of guiding evidence-based practice, of that evidence-based stool, the clinical expertise one has just been totally ignored by the UK. And as, as is the, the individual circumstances at play of, of, of what's going on within their society, because they've just stopped testing people unless they're already shown up to hospital. So they're essentially using, they're sitting on a three-legged stool with one leg on the ground. So they're literally operating off unstable foundations with one source of, they're using one source of information to guide their practice at the expense of using three sources that, that an actual evidence-based practice is guided by typically at a fractal level from a, the way that me or you would interact with a client that we were working with for, that was trying to get stronger or get improved body comp or a fighter getting ready or whatever. We'd, be, we'd have those three legs mulling around and you know we're looking at what's going on, but that isn't being take, taken into account at all with, with the UK. It's just an example of, as a counter example to Dr. Michael Ryan's urge to act now, and, and it's the same with Nassim Taleb, he's like, act fast now because it's better to be wrong with precautionary via negativa measures than it is to not act fast enough and then not be able to deal with the fallout down the line. So why not just be wrong early, be wrong big, be wrong early, and then look back and laugh. Rather, not take the risk that you're going to be wrong, look for perfection, and then end up not being able to deal with potentially what might be, might be, might be absolute carnage. Like, and, and that's, what's, that's, that, that's, that's the way we... And if the top-down institutions aren't going to do this, then we need to do it as individuals. Because if they're not going to... like. If they're not going to tell us, like even on Friday night, and the, the, one, of the, one of the people leading the HSE, like he was asked outright by, um, what's your man's name, Tuberty, about going to the pub. And he kind of said, ah, yeah, go, but keep social distancing. I'm like, I'm watching him, like, a million fucking people are going to watch this, whatever more people watch the thing, probably even more, because there's probably a lot of people at home on a Friday night. And he's telling people to go to the fucking pub. Is he off his tree, like, you know? <laughs> And, and, and like, <laughs> what's going on? And then are we in the fucking twilight zone or what? Like, and and uh, and there's no and then there's there's no one and the the paradox of it there's no one in the fucking RTE studio. So the studio is empty. The people within the fucking that are on this panel are sitting in the chairs, two or three chairs apart. And then the fella is saying to go to the pub when this is a disease that a virus that spread with respiratory droplets. And you're spending people to go to a warm, cozy place where there's probably music where you have to lean in to talk to someone, and then you're going to be sweating anyway because you're drinking and you're fucking boisterous. Like, you know, so it's like, it's like, what the fuck is going on? So, anyway, at an individual level, we can act independent of what the, the people say that are running the zoo. We can all act as individuals as to maximally contribute to their collective well being. And we can all do that as individuals. And then, regardless of what fucking advice is coming, you can all social distance, social isolation, obviously, of the symptoms. But what can be done independent of symptoms is maximal social isolation or social uh, distancing. Whatever amount of social distancing is possible, do it because then you're decreasing the chance of network interaction between, you, between a potential viral contagion within your particular social network 
physical social network, not fucking Twitter, and viral interaction in other people's social networks. And if you happen to go and hang out with other people, especially if it's in an indoor location, especially if it's in an enclosed space, and, and if you happen to interact with them, then you're increasing the chances of a viral spread between your two networks. Whereas if you stay the fuck away from as many people as possible, then we're decreasing the chances of network interaction. Noted that brilliant image that was put up by Dr. Nicholas Christakis, who actually did a savage podcast with Sam Harris on Sam Harris Making Sense uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. I think it was episode 190, only came out last week. And he uses, but on Twitter, he put up this great image of a lot of matchsticks, mm-hmm. where there's four or five matchsticks that are burnt, and then there's four or five matchsticks that are unburnt, and then between them is one matchstick that's pulled down as a really obvious example of what happens when you, when you don't connect networks. You're, not, you're decreasing the chances of the spread between networks. So the idea is to minimize the amount of networks you're interacting with at an individual level. And, in it, and there will be other things that we can do to help that are going to emerge eventually. Vulnerable people are going to show up who are potentially going to need people who are less vulnerable to go shopping for them or to help them out or to, to whatever needs to be done. This stuff will emerge. But in an individual, as, 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 as information spreads and people are at need help, and this will happen. But at, a, at an individual level, for the most part, we can take decisions to just do what Italy or fucking South Korea are doing, or even China when they realize that they have to get their shit together and they have to because they, they have to save face, not because they probably give a fuck about human well-being, to be, to be, if I was to be cynical about it, but because they need to save face in front of their own populace and the international community. That's what their incentive structure was from a governmental perspective. So it's social, minimal social interaction. Like there's still, there was a fucking stereophonics concert in the UK on Saturday with thousands of people, thousands of people in an, in an arena or something. It's, it's chest to chest, obviously, at a concert and a big stereophonics concert and a Lewis Capaldi concert. They went ahead, thousands of people jammed together, breathing on each other. Like they're looking at, they're looking at a, a hell beyond comprehension in the UK over the next two or three weeks. And the, the government are behaving like it's business as usual. Um, whereas here, we're, we're, we're closer, we're still kind of somewhere maybe between Italy or Spain and the UK, that there's, even last night apparently, I didn't see it now, so I may be wrong, but a friend of mine rang me, a friend of mine who has an underlying issue, he has a, he's in the high risk category because he's had multiple uh, collapsed lungs. He, he contacted me fuming because the Ranker is telling people to go out to restaurants and cafes and stuff. And, and, and not drilling home this maximal social restrict, uh, social um, um, distancing protocol, which it's, it's like, of course, like the thing about it is, as you mentioned earlier on about economies, like economies will recover, dead people will not. You know, that's a, that's a really important message. It's like, fuck it, okay, we generate less money. People are making less money. Just, we'll figure that shit out. We'll figure that out. We, whatever we need to be done, We'll figure that out. But dead people are, are my, my loved ones, your loved ones who are vulnerable. Potentially even us, if we happen to be, because yeah. we don't even know about this virus from a, maybe there's certain, maybe, maybe down the line in months to come, there'll be certain genetic, there'll be certain genome coding that makes certain people more predisposed at certain ages. So maybe even me or you, even though I, I don't know about you, but I don't have anything that's going to predispose me to this hypertension, cardiovascular disease, underlying respiratory issues. None of that. I don't have any of that but I might still be just an unlucky one. So, the, and, and even, I don't know, man, this, I don't think the, 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 it's not being drilled home enough from a top down. So 
all right, grand, take some of the top-down information, we can pay attention to it, but at an individual level, we can still look at, okay, what, what's, what's going on in the places where this shit is working? So Korea are doing a great job. You know, they're now in damage limitation perspective. They're in the mitigation phase. They're in, they're in, 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 they're in, in Italy. They're, they're shit hitting the fan. The shit's going to hit the fan in Spain. It's going to hit the fan in France. You know, people are out, like Dr. John Campbell, um, he's been putting out really good videos for months now on this coronavirus stuff. Um, he was also part of the reason, watching his videos over the last few weeks, is also part of the kind of a wake-up call for me as well. Um, but he, he was telling that he was getting emails from saying that there's people out just having the crack in France over the weekend on scale. Like, and I was like, and it, it, it's this, this, this same, none of us are immune to these fallacies, this, this, this distortion of information in terms of how we process it and how we make decisions. Like we, we discussed, it's just, oh, but I think, how do we, how do we encourage people to, to, to take the reins, realize this magnitude of the situation that they're in and take the reins to try and minimize the harm that they're doing? That's what it is. It's like minimize harm. That's the thing from the first and foremost to the base level. How do we behave in such a way that our actions result from a ripple effect in as little unnecessary suffering and death as possible? That's the fucking baseline. And it's, um, and that's the that's the goal. It's like, right, this is we start from here. How do we how do we fuck up as little as possible? And it's a very simple way. It's stay the fuck away from other people as much as possible. <laughs> you know, because it's very simple. But that's what's worked in China. Non-pharmaceutical non-pharmaceutical intervention. Using South Korea as an example. Social isolation, social distancing, and uh, uh, hand washing, and and on mass testing. What they're able to do over here. Maybe that might come out here, but. I don't even fuck. I only remember. I'm just ranting now, man, because I can't even remember what your question was. No, I don't. I don't think I had a question. What I was going to say is that I'm pretty sure the UK they've kind of backtracked on some of what they had said now. So hopefully, um, for them that continues in that direction. Um, but but what I wanted to do was actually just kind of take everything that we've said there, especially as, as it relates to kind of uncertainty and the role of evidence um, in decision making and make a quick point about like how this actually relates to, because a lot of you listening to this are personal trainers or trainees or athletes or whatever, like how this actually relates to your own decision making. Because obviously in the last 10 years in particular, like the kind of ev evidence-based practice has basically, you know, flew through the fitness industry taking over everyone's call themselves you know evidence-based and it's kind of like a badge of honor but it's often not clear like what that actually means and how you act when you don't have evidence and that's a really important consideration and an example of this would be right like let's say you're on your coaching you're coaching a rugby team uh you're in the middle of a game it's not like it's not a final it's like pre-season game challenge match whatever player comes up says you're on, uh, you know, getting back into the sprinting. My hamstrings actually, my hamstrings not feeling great. This is kind of what it felt like last time uh, when I tore my hamstring. Um, I'm not feeling too confident. In that moment, you have an, an option to be, to apply the precautionary principle or to try and be the intellectual yet idiot. Okay, because what you can do in that situation is say, um, "Here, mate, we actually don't have." Um, any any evidence to to say that the symptom you're reporting um exactly correlates with you tearing your hamstring um so as a result let's play on um and basically you take that risk that the 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 return on investment from the player 
playing the rest of the game is worth the other side, which is the risk of him tearing his mm. hamstring and being out for the whole season. So applying the precautionary principle there would be you saying, I, there's actually uncertainty here. Therefore, I, it's actually a good idea for me to overreact. I have to mm. overreact because I don't yeah. want, like the risk of ruin is way worse than him not playing the rest of the game. So the wise decision in that context would be, all right, this player thinks he's going to tear his hamstring. I think there might be at least some bit of a chance that this is going to happen. Let's swap him off for another fella. This isn't the most important game. We don't need to sacrifice everything for this. So let's, let, let's just get, get this on board now. It might be my favorite decision to make. I'd like him to play the rest of the game, but that's the decision we need to make in the moment. Um, so I think that's, that's a really important message to get across to people because sometimes like I come across trainers, and I know I've been there in the past myself where you try to make every decision based on evidence. And sometimes, or a lot of the time, there's just not evidence to justify all your decisions. Like the way I look at kind of training decisions and nutrition decisions and lifestyle decisions is that you're going to have a certain amount of evidence that tells you like, right, X is, X is probably better than Y. So we have these comparisons between interventions in particular populations. We have an idea of what's probably not the best idea in a kind of via negativa way, like this is what you don't do, but you don't always have evidence that's there to tell you exactly what you should do. And that's where you have to start bringing in like things like your expertise as a trainer, your past experience, and your assessment of risk and the precautionary principle to try and make sure that things actually move in the direction that you want. Yeah, 100%. Like an example there about what we don't do. Like via negativa is way more, it's way easier to grasp than via positiva. So for example, it's pretty obvious. Well, in terms of what we don't do, if, I have a, if we're training a power lifter, you don't disallow them from, you don't disallow them to use a barbell if they can, if they can if they actually want to get better at squatting and benching and deadlifting and tell them to go do Zumba classes. No, you don't go, you know what we're going to do to get you to go to powerlifting is Zumba. You know, you, that's a really absurd example, but it's like, it's really easy to cut Zumba via negative. We're not going to do that as a primary means of training preparation for a powerlifting competition. So you can cut that. So, what, so then it's really easy. That's really obvious to get. But an example as well about the lack of evidence is like, it also, from a coaching perspective as well, in terms of say like program design, the approach you're going to take to develop an athlete, this stuff, and the lack of evidence, like if, if you're if you're a, a strength and conditioning coach, like or a physical working in physical prep or whatever, like near like they say, like near you and we're preparing an athlete, and we're and we're tasked with taking one of the strongest human be- beings on earth, let's say like the IPF world record holders in whatever weight classes, and then you're going get them stronger. There isn't any evidence that that exists that are at the fringes that that are that are going to because because it a lag time between it's like. The way that this, the way that even like intellect, of knowledge is generated, there's a lag time of months and years, and and even then you have to make decisions in the gym at a moment, and and even around program adjustment, program design. So at the fringes of the of the human uh, of human abilities in sport and preparation, there isn't data from an empirical sense to guide what you're going to do in any meaningful way. If I'm training, if we're taking fucking Bryce Lewis or something and you're going to go, yeah, him stronger. What peer-reviewed fucking meta-analysis is going to give me a hand with that? Like, you know, it might, it might very well, there might be certain components at certain times that feed in, but you're way more, like I mentioned, that three-legged stool. There are certain times where you're going to have to shift more towards one, two legs maybe than the other. 
and maybe sometimes maybe you might even have to shift more towards one leg maybe but more so like let's say it's a three-legged stool of clinical clinical expertise empirical data and individual circumstance there are points if you're working at the fringes of human performance like with, an, with a new same ball he was rocking at his peak like a fucking bright like a bryce lewis or one of these ipf world champs like you, you you're you're shift way more towards clinical expertise and individual circumstances rather than empirical data so you're 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 still all three legs are going to be on the ground likely but you're you're leaning way more onto two of those three legs in terms of what you're going what evidence you're going to weigh to guide your training practices and the way the program is going to be designed and you're going to be using feedback from way more, like, and i think this this, um, this this virus situation is way more similar to dealing with an Usain Bolt at his peak or a Bryce Lewis at his peak yeah. than it is with dealing with Karen from accounting who wants to start lifting weights and get a better body comp, who's never done any training. Like there's fucking loads of data, especially if she happens to be a recreationally active college student. There's fucking loads of it <laughs> that you can help in terms of empirical data. Yeah. You know, so that this 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 situation, it's it's and that's an, it's a, maybe a, maybe a, an example, is like at the fringes, which this virus is because it's brand new. If it, it, it maybe maybe it might have been around since fucking October or whatever, maybe it was just like we've been chatting about before about or how long this has maybe been around, whatever. But let's say it's a if it, let's assume that without the propaganda machine in China, or whatever, that there's only really data emerging since let's say it only existed since January, let's say, right, for late December. Then that's still only a few months. Like this is at the fringes. This disease is Usain Bolt that is best, essentially. And you're trying to guide the training program. You can't wait for the fucking evidence. You know, like you mentioned Michael Ryan, that needs to act, you need to make decisions now, you need to orientate what we're actually dealing with in the real world based on clinical expertise and uh, and uh, Obviously, I'm saying this as if I'm a fucking epidemiologist, which I'm not by far, but I think, I don't know, again, I got fucking a bit emotional there, man. I'm ramped up, man. This <laughs> thing, this, this fucking virus has me, this, this whole thing is just taking over. Everyone's, everyone's a bit on edge, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it's taking over. It's like there isn't anything, nothing else seems important other than this. Like, we're literally at war. This is like fucking the blitz, like, you know, yeah. like, the Nazis are rocking. The Luftwaffe are flying overhead. Like, do you know what I mean? This is, where this is serious shit. Like, so I suppose maybe it's understandable that uh, we fucking ramped up, and maybe because I've had a pot and a half of coffee as well. <laughs> Me too, man. Um, but yeah, like the reason I wanted to kind of bring that stuff up for people is because I think it's, and I know this is something we've talked about in the past. I think if you can start to draw generalizable principles from a lot of different areas that you that you're interested in life you can actually start to learn a lot more. And there are lessons that are generalizable between the approach to COVID-19 and the approach that you might have with an athlete who is in extremistan, to use that terminology. Yeah. You have that advanced athlete, or even like, it doesn't always have to be advanced. Sometimes it's a case of someone is, has a particular injury and they're playing a particular sport and there's just not evidence available to tell you exactly what you should be doing with those people. And like, some of the times what happens in the physiotherapy world is that people try to 
find people conceptualize evidence-based practice as being totally protocol driven that you follow the protocol and on week four you do this and on week six you do this and something i always have to get across to clients when we're going through kind of like a rehab process is on week one i say there this is a this is a process and it's the same with coaching i say this is a process and we have a certain amount of information available now but i i i'm going to be totally honest with you i do not know where you will be in two weeks i do not know where you will be in four weeks i definitely don't know where you're going to be in six weeks okay so all we're trying to ever do as coaches as physiotherapists as nutritionists anything along those lines is help move the needle forward get the person to the next step we're not always thinking like you might have an idea right I, I know where I want to be in 12 weeks time, but like, like life happens. And that's even the case for general population clients. You know, if you're making decisions, you can't always have this like fixed top down protocol. that's going to tell you where you're going to be in 12 weeks, because they're like, if you look at any of the research, for example, on responses to resistance training over certain interventions, you'll see that some people gain ridiculous amounts of strength some people gain very little strength and some people even lose strength when retested on a given week. And some of that can be down to measurement error and things like that um, and normal variance. But some of it is just the case that you cannot always predict how someone is going to respond to any mm -hmm. given intervention. So you have to always be willing. Like, I think this is a good time to bring in a good quote from, from your mentor, your supervisor, Dr. John Kiley. I believe he said, um, always draw your program in pencil, not in pen. I believe that's a quote that came from him. Like that, that's a really important thing to, to understand, whether it's rehab, whether it's nutrition, whether it's training, that you draw it in pencil so that you have the option to change it. And obviously that's metaphorical. If you use Google Sheets, you can just fucking delete. You know, Excel, you just delete. Um, that, that you're always willing to change in response to the information that's being fed back to you. Um, and that, that decision-making in the presence of uncertainty um, is a key lesson for coaches, especially in the kind of evidence-based era because you just don't know what's going to happen next week or the week after. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a quote that jumped to mind there, a phrase that jumped to mind there. It's from another mate of mine where he's, he kind of refers to the coaching planning process as just like plan, do, review, plan, do, review, plan, do, review, plan, do, review. And then Mladen, who I'm actually going to be talking to this week, hopefully, if fucking, um, if, 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 unless things have changed with this, with this fucking... Uh, Worldwide pandemic. Maybe chatting to him tomorrow on Skype, but Mladen has this concept of uh, agile periodization, yeah. which is this it's, it's this whole concept of yeah, just, it's an iterative basis, and that you just constantly it's this plan do review basis. It's just constantly take information based what's going on in the real world, adjust go again. Take information what's going on, fit it in, and then adjust go again. And you're constantly doing that on an on an ongoing basis. And as you said, this this ability, this idea of the fact that think about this and think about the fractal nature of this like at an individual level with any client that me or you works with or or when you go on to when you go on to work with patients as a doctor there's 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 no we can't predict with any epistemic certainty what's going where the person is going to be in x period of time especially the further out x becomes the less viable the prediction is in terms of how well it's going to accurately reflect reality so anyone who like that's why i suppose like it's, it, from a programming it, from a fractal perspective i suppose i'm getting to like so at an individual level that's the case it's also at the case like that's why this that's a brilliant analogy to bring across the this virus madness is that it's the same 
at a fractal level when you look at society as one single organism. So if you look at human society in any particular, whether it be within a country or within or in the globe or within an individual country, look at the, let's say if you look at Irish society as one giant superorganism, that's a fractal representation of what's going on at an individual level. Because like even with this virus itself, look at some of the epi- and the, viral- the the data so far. The, the variation within people with this virus is, prob- is, 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 is off the wall. Like, where some people have up to two weeks incubation with no symptoms before they actually start showing any symptoms. You know, this is some of the days I've seen. It varies from only a couple, of, a couple of days up to two weeks. And obviously it's so new and there's loads of murkiness and there's loads of cloudiness within the data because maybe it's not. But the variation that's there at an individual level is, and, and how long they're going to be sick for and all the different factors that are going to lead to how fast they're going to be able to recover based on all these moving parts within them as an individual based on their previous health conditions, based on their own immune system, based on their own genetics, based on the way that even like the way that they're stressing or not, what, what kind of external help are they going to get what's their new, in terms of the, the health system, all this kind of stuff are feeding in in this. And then there's this emergent property of how likely are they to get sick, how long is their lag time in terms of carrying the disease, picking it up, and, or the virus, carrying it up and then start expressing symptoms, how well they're going to get better. That's precisely the same at an individual level for the virus as it is for any kind of training intervention that we design. And it's the, it's the same principle. Where, and, then, and then you extract that out to a population, treat the Irish population or the British population or whatever as a one single superorganism that's unique to other super, compared to other superorganisms because of culture, because of the health institution, because of the education levels of the doctors, because of the transport logistics situation, because of whole loads of these factors all come into play about how quickly or, or, or slowly we're going to get through this and uh, deal with the stress of the situation in a, ideally as positive a means as possible. And um, you can expand, expand it out to an individual like that. And I think in a fractal manner, it's a handy way of, of viewing it, just like you can with, when you look at when you look at this, a lot of training data, a big problem with a lot of sports science data is that like, they use a lot of averages and um, p-values to look at average changes. But if you see the actual individual data, that's where the, mag- that's where the, that's where the gems are. Because like, yeah. you can have super responders or even negative responders, like you mentioned, depending on when the testing was done. So it's, whereas if you just mash it all together and make fucking sports science soup out of it, and then look at a, and then look at an average change in what went on. You're missing the actual, the high resolution viewpoint of what's going on in an individual unit at play. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's a that's a, a great analogy to draw back to the, the sports science perspective and how we can view this. But yeah, it's it's act, acting with uncertainty, realizing that we're ignorant as fuck. Pretty much all of all individual humans are ignorant as fuck all the time. But the idea is to accept your ignorance, realize you're a finite, limited, fallible, irrational, baldy monkey, and realize that, but that there are better ways of being, and better ways of being an irrational, perpetually ignorant, inescapably fallible, baldy monkey. There's better ways of doing that. And one of those better ways is to realize you are such, and then work from there. And that creates this epistemic humility, where you start putting the knowledge you don't have on a higher pedestal than the knowledge you do have, which would be epistemic arrogance. And this is, again, to bring it back to what you here are doing. That's what they look like they're doing. They're, they're approaching this from a perspective of epistemic arrogance. They're putting the knowledge they do have on a higher pedestal than that which they don't. 
um, specific knowledge around obviously with what modeling they're using or whatever, which I don't, which at, the, at this moment, they still haven't released to the British public as far as I know. They still haven't released to all these hundreds of scientists that are appealing for them to release the models so that they can be reviewed, which they still haven't done yet. But um, anyway, I'm fucking, again, I'm going off another rant, coffee fuel rant. <laughs> yeah, no, like, so if we, if we were going to move on, I had, we basically had kind of two other main topics that we wanted to discuss. I think what we'll do is we'll skip the second one and we'll basically have you on again another time. Because to be honest, I imagine these chats could, could literally be five hours in length. And what we might do is skip on to, the third thing, because I think it's actually quite topical and it was one of the reasons I wanted to get the podcast out quick. Um, and one of the reasons I want to discuss it with you is because you have, you know, for, for many years have been into things like calisthenics and physical culture in general, beyond the walls of the gym, beyond the barbell. And I think now is a good time to have, kind of have a chat about that. So how can we at this time diversify our physical training arsenal like this doesn't have to be like you know super theoretical just like you know what are some spicy workout ideas that people can give a shot depending on different types of equipment that they happen to have available at the moment um so just again i'm not this isn't medical advice as such but yeah but it's worth saying just based on what rudimentary export knowledge i have but advice that i've given to athletes of mine is just to again err on the side of caution about where we even train first 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 and foremost which is that so because i there was that i mean a really dramatic example is that article that Reuters article about patient 31 in korea yeah who potentially infected all these people by going to mass and shouting amen at the top of her voice loads of times essentially because it's a respiratory tra- a respiratory droplet transmission so I don't like the idea, just again, it's a via negativa approach. Why not be over careful and err on the side of caution? And if you live with other people, don't train in the house. Don't be doing fucking burpees in the house and huffing and puffing, breathing heavy, putting fucking potentially, you could be an asymptomatic, free symptomatic carrier, huffing and puffing, blown out um, uh, respiratory, potentially uh, viral containing respiratory droplets all over the gap. If you live by yourself or one other person and you're just both around each other all the time or whatever, or your housemates, probably not that big a deal. But if you live with other people, especially if you're one of these people that has to keep leaving the house because you live in, a, you work for an emergency services, you work in the medical field, you work as a care worker, you're a primary care person, you're uh, a fuck it, someone who's working in a supermarket, someone who's a uh, works in, who has to keep, who can maximally socially distance. Then, then you're, 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 potentially, you're more likely to be getting these exposures wherever it happens. So, the idea, so I just think, keep it simple, be a negative, uh, train in the back garden or on a patio or a field or a park, because why not? And yeah. like worst case scenario, you have to wear a jacket and it rains, but you're still outside and we're going to be spending enough fucking time inside anyway. So, like I you put up a class video I saw on social media recently of doing dips using a hand railing. You had to go up somewhere. That's the job, like. Um, so that's the first thing. And just, just and again, that's just like a via negativa location. And uh, maybe it's maybe it's overcautious. Maybe it's unnecessary. But I just kind of see that as a why not take why not do it anyway. Which is kind of so. What, what I did even yesterday was, uh, so I've got some kettlebells and stuff here in the house, thankfully, and I just moved them down by the back door, and um, so that I can just whip them out into the back garden and use them. So like I have this big cardboard box outside of the back door and I have a load of kettlebells sitting inside me. I'm going to whip them in and out to the back garden. Um, but, like, but, even for, but so that's 
that's uh, an approach. And also, even I'm planning on going outside using uh, for for pull ups. I'm going to be using probably trees in the park over to the park near my house. Start using some trees for pull ups, very grips. Uh, using uh, parking, so those parking restriction height restriction things. They're stopping <laughs> vans or whatever. What? They're class. Yeah, <laughs> using those. serious grip on them, like. <laughs> yeah, you're like this holding the thing. Yeah. You put chin ups on it. You're like this, you get savage finger strength, you know. Yeah. And uh, using those for, uh, and I happen to have it. I'm lucky enough, and that I, as I've been into this outdoor training kind of stuff for so long, I have my own set of gymnastics rings as well yes. that I can whip out to a park or whip out to a. Um, anywhere so as I say there's an enormous amount of traffic all of a sudden I'm saying my house is loads of beeps and stuff I don't know what's going on hopefully it's not worst case scenario stuff but uh, so anyway um, so yeah so like but using outdoor structures even things like uh, and again this is maybe something else that might be worth keeping in mind again it's like a kind of a precautionary thing but uh, why not wear uh, gloves when using, if using things like handrails and stuff, like, you know, like there are poles for handrails, why not just use fucking gardening gloves or something? Because we'll get better grip, which potentially may mean more reps. And on the absolute minuscule off chance that there someone happened to sneeze on it, you know, <laughs> you're kind of airing inside, oh, sure, why not? You know, why not do that? That might be a good idea. Maybe again, it's just paranoia. But because um, it looks like this stuff survives a metal a lot longer, but I don't know what way that works if it's outdoors i don't know so they're kind of just precautionary steps is train outside also train away from other people especially if it's indoors um to still maintain that social distancing crap so basically uh, in summary train outside in the field <laughs> from location or a park or a garden yeah but then from an actual training perspective there's fucking loads you can do like there's a class for an example um Obviously, there's all different types of pull-ups, different grips, change it up, change up the sets and reps, vary the intensities and the volumes by choosing different chin-up or pull-up progressions, um, to or the horizontal row progressions. Um, uh, you can use like, different pistol squat progressions for the legs, uh, something, to, something that's going to hold your feet down, ideally not another person. For Nordics, you, know, you can go high rep single leg RDLs, high rep glute bridges, High rep rear foot elevated split squats, high rep walking lunges, lateral lunges, body weight squats, push up progressions, put together different variations in regards to what I'm planning on doing is having some sessions that are more strength orientated with like more advanced chin up progressions, spicier push up progressions, and uh, pistol squat progressions. And then having other days that are more strength endurance based, like really high rep rear foot elevated split squats. Easier chin up or easier like horizontal row or chin up progressions for more volume and more reps, um, as well as things like uh, easier push up progressions for more reps and uh, high rep stuff like that. High rep single leg RD, or high rep single leg RDLs, that which are spicy as fuck. You start doing 50, 20 reps of those. Everything in the posterior chain, ankle stabilizers, everything are lit up. And also being aware that just because you, someone might not have access to a gym at an, at an individual muscle fiber perspective. The, the muscle tissue doesn't know where the yeah. strain is coming from, where the force is coming from. The muscle tissue itself is just experiencing force and tension. It doesn't know if you're using a fucking barbell to do squats or if you're doing a load of pistol squats with a bag full of books. You know, or, so in terms of, it's, you know, you can do wall supported 
pistol squat with, a, with holding a weight or with a bag hanging off your front with stuff full of books or bricks or something, you know, or, or shrimp squats or whatever. So that quad tissue won't know where the tension is coming from. At an individual muscle level, it's just fucking tension. Yeah. So same principles apply around progressive overload, making things spicier as you get stronger. So paying attention. Am I, is this getting easier? Make it harder. Very simple. Am I not? Is this getting too spicy? I'm not making much progress. Maybe pull it back a little bit, chuck a little bit of variation in to spice things up, make an adjustment, go again. Very same principles apply as if we were doing barbell work, as if we were doing um, uh, dumbbell work, machine-based, external load strength work. Same principles apply. Um, there's, that's probably their kind of big things that jump out at me as kind of ideas. And it actually can potentially even be enjoyable for people because especially if there's going to be a lot of social distancing, even just being out in a park, using a park bench for some split squats or pistol squat progressions or whatever, being out and just being in the middle of a green area with your hands on grass, actually feels nice to do that. Just have your hands on grass, gripping a tree and doing some fucking chin-ups with weird grips, a tree branch. And that stuff, so it actually feels nice, yeah. especially from the perspective of the harsh reality of this. I've been, I've been writing an article the last few days and one of the, it was so difficult for me to write, but one of the things I was writing about in this article is essentially a big thing I'm probably going to publish it later on today. I don't know when this video is going to be put out, but um, I was writing about loss. And it kind of hit me that like I was writing, not only is a lot of the epidemiologists that I've read are saying that like we're potentially looking at 40 to 70% of the, of the populace are going to get this virus at some stage. So like, and it hit me a ton of rock, a ton of bricks. That, like if you look at, even if you look at the more conservative South Korean death rate of 1%, you take it out, that's still tens of thousands of people, you know, in Ireland, let's say. And it can hit me as a ton of bricks that, that the mo most likely I'm going to know someone, who, I'm going to lose a loved one as a, as a, as a result of this. Most likely. Like, it, it, and, I, and, I, and I had this realization, I was just thinking about high-risk people that I know in terms of age or underlying conditions, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. But even independent of that obvious loss, there's even going to be the loss of the human physical contact. Like there's a genuine reality where I'm not going to know when I can, I don't know when, I, when or if I'll ever be able to hug my own parents again, you know? And that's like, that's a mad reality. So like the, even a pale substitute might be to just actually grab other living things. Like if like actually put your hands on muck and do push-ups, put your hands on fucking grass and do push-ups, do fucking bear crawls, Grab a tree, hug the fucking tree if you want. Be a proper like, be a proper hippie. Yeah, but just like that. What? Yeah. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Like you know, if that's yeah. Hug yeah. the tree. So, so yeah, so they, they kind of jump out to me as, as ideas and um, as as ways that I'm going to approach anyway. And I'm sure it'll change. But yeah, so that's how I'm kind of viewing it so far. But uh, what what are your kind of what way are you thinking about it in terms of the training? That's not even looking at strength. That's not even looking at running or yeah, yeah. any of that kind of stuff that other people can do or just walks and getting outside in nature, getting near rivers, streams, trees, just listening, just paying attention to what's going on, all that, just getting outside is potentially going to be as a silver lining. This could be a, there could be a lot of silver linings to this, it's, I suppose. I don't want to, I don't want to shine, I don't want to downplay the severity of what we're going to do, but there's another side to the coin as well, which this could confront us with some, some realities that maybe a lot of us have been maybe ignoring or just haven't, didn't realize were there around the joy from the simplicity of nature, experiencing nature, even just being outside training 
for an hour, an hour and a half, doing some chin-ups and push-ups in between sets. You're just listening to birds chirping away or hearing a stream fucking go by. Like there's, there's so much joy and uh, pr- pleasure in that, in that, in those kind of simple experiences. Where at the end of the day, we're, we're a, a mammal, we're an animal, we're, we're a species that's part of this living organism that we live on. You know? So I think there's a, a potential silver lining to this, again, not to, to downplay the severity of the situation, is a kind of a, use that kind of phrase maybe as like a, a rewilding, let's say, where we, where we realize because we're going to be taken away from physical contact with other people, because we're going to be potentially fully locked down like has taken place in other countries where we might not even get a chance to go outside our front doors at some point if it gets bad enough, like it's happened in China um, in parts of it, like where they, they were forced, if we might not even get a chance, we just withdraw, you're forced to withdraw and that might the absence makes the heart grow fonder than maybe people will realize what was there all along, but they were taken for granted. So there's a potential benefit to this. But um, sorry, I cut you off there, man. What, what are your thoughts on this, this situation? Yeah, like what I've been saying to a lot of my clients, especially those who are more interested in resistance training, I've been kind of saying to them, like, look, right, this is a tough time for most of you. Like a couple of my clients, like one of them is a, a pharmacist, like real difficult position to be in. She was saying that, uh, People are getting real pissed off when they're coming in. They're giving out about wait times, you know, and like obviously pharmacists are in a really difficult position because, you know, people could be coming into them with symptoms looking for a cough bottle and then they're thinking, fuck, like you're not supposed to be here. Why are you in my face? Like, do you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like she was saying like work is so stressful and all this. And I was saying, look, right, we're, you're used to having, because she kind of has like peripheral, like powerlifting goals. And I'd be saying, look, you're used to having a kind of a, a more strict program that says, you know, right, you do four sets of three and you're going to do it with this weight or that this RP or whatever. Like you're used to that kind of, you know, that rigidity and having to go to the gym and that sort of stuff. Like for me, for me, for most of my clients right now, like the fun factor needs to be high. You know, the fun yeah. factor in training and the enjoyment factor in training needs to be high because anyone that has tried to kind of train at home or have a more flexible program for a while knows that it's very easy to just kind of put it off or to do the first two exercises and to say, oh, I just want to go on the laptop for a while or whatever, especially if you're doing it in the home. So for me, the the fun factor needs to be high because you need to actually be enjoying the the training process. Use it as a time to practice push-up variations that you never have. Get on a tree and do some chin-ups. Get outside and do some running. Make sure it's fun and just make yourself physically challenged for 30 to 60 minutes a day you know that's what i was saying to some of my clients i was like look do i care if you do like i don't know just bodyweight squats with a bit of weight or if you do pistol squats does that make that much of a difference to to your training outcomes not really like if you want to do one of those over the other on a given day or you want to do two sets of wide grip push-ups and two sets of diamond push-ups please feel free. You know, it's not the time for rigidity. Enjoy your training and and then you'll likely put more effort into it. And the other thing I've been saying to people, especially those individuals who play maybe a sport that has multiple components of fitness involved, right? This is a fantastic time to work on your conditioning because there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't do some serious conditioning workouts during this time. You know, if you can find a field, especially a field with a hill or anything like that, you can even go for a hike up the mountains if you want. You could still do plenty of interval training, plenty of long steady state stuff. So there's so many options from from that side of things. And there's at least kind of three to five of my clients who would 
they've been kind of tipping around with a little bit of running every now and then, but they'd never really committed to it. And now they have more time off work and they're not going to be able to get to the gym. So we're saying, right, let's turn this into a positive situation and let's get you doing that 10K that you've always wanted to do, that, but that we never really emphasized, you know, because like running outdoors and staying away from people, like that's very low risk. It's a low risk activity. Yeah. There's no reason why you couldn't follow a, a fairly normal training program with little to no interruption. Um, and yeah. again, try to take the silver linings that are there in a pretty awful situation. 100%. I like that, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that enjoyment. I, I, I even took that for granted. It never even occurred to me because this has been such a part of my life for so long. It, I, I, it never even occurred to me that other people wouldn't also like doing chin-ups in the field. You know? <laughs> didn't even occur like it was totally my bias I was blindsided by my bias there man <laughs> uh, and, and, and the auto regulation stuff as well is massive and I think the, uh, that fits into kind of uncertainty based training planning as it relates to yeah. auto regulation not just of volumes and intensities but auto regulation in terms of even what exercise variations of the person enjoying do they feel good and they feel like they can work hard at and that they you know they get a good burn or mind muscle connection or whatever tension or whatever feeling just stimulate to make the whole process more enjoyable. Yeah, that that, that auto regulation with regards to intensity, the volume, and the variation, exercise selection, and everything as well. Definitely, man. Yeah, I love that. Especially yes. enjoyment. Hundred percent. That's totally blindsided me. Yeah, no, like because you kind of forget. Like, I mean, yeah. like for me, even like until probably the last two years, like most of my training probably would have been within the walls of a gym like until like getting more into doing things like uh chin-ups and push-ups and doing a bit of training at home and like it kind of only came came out for me because i had less time on my hands and getting to the gym was a bit more burdensome so i started to you know get into a bit more um you know doing a bit of training at home or just doing a bit of training out the back or um like running as well, like running for me was something that kind of never really gave much attention to within the last probably two and a half years running more regularly. And you start to see all these like additional <laughs> benefits that, oh Jesus, like all oh, this stuff is so fun outside the walls of the gym. Yeah. Uh, and if you've never been, if you're, if all your training has always been focused in the gym, it, it can all be a bit new. Like I know loads of lads who they're unreal at bench pressing, but they never do push-ups. You know, they haven't done push-ups for years just because people think, oh, they're not a hard exercise. You know, once you're beyond the beginner stage, they're just not hard anymore. But man, mm-hmm. like do some like archer push-ups or like put a school bag w- w- with books um, on your back and a push-up is an absolutely fantastic exercise. Yeah. Or try and do three sets of 50 reps and see how you feel after that. <laughs> yeah. There's a brilliant book, actually, that might be a, re- a handy recommendation for people. Um, especially if people ha- happen to be in a situation where they don't have any equipment and they have no, they have no equipment, they have no gear. And let's say worst case scenario, we end up not even worst case scenario, probably best case scenario from an epidemiology perspective. But worst case scenario as it relates to training options is we actually get locked down like Wuhan. You can't even go outside for a walk or a run. Like let's say that ends up being a situation like which again worst best depending on the context. Yeah. Um, is there's a book called The Naked Warrior by Pavel Satsuli which is just, it's a, it's a really small, I, I got, a friend of mine sent me a PDF of it years ago, and I, I didn't buy it, I just got, I got sent a PDF of it years ago, which is essentially, it's just a, a very small book that about getting, about progressions and concepts to build towards two exercises only, which are pistol squats and one arm push-ups. So it's, a, it's just a whole book based around, it's called The Naked Warrior because it's like no equipment. 
no equipment, no gear, you can still get fucking strong. So like the Pete, like so it's just basically a whole book based on those two, and it's got all the different progressions and concepts around how strength works and grease the groove concepts around staying away from failure and accumulating reps and practice across time and it explain it actually explains strength really well in it as well. There's some really good concepts in it, but um that could be a recommendation. And I think there's other stuff as well. Like there's probably there's other um books that I haven't read personally, but I've heard of friends of mine that are into calisthenics quite like them. Like uh, convict conditioning is another one. It's by just like body weight training, but as if you were in prison. Yeah. Essentially. So I say again it's all different progressions, like handstand push up progressions, um single arm push-up progressions, pistol squat progressions, that kind of thing. And so they're this they know a potential option to people if they want to get a more kind of like a, a kind of a a systemized way of how do I even how do I conceptualize training with no equipment whatsoever if I was in a prison cell. And those those two books might be might be useful to people. Again I've only read the, the Naked Warrior ones, so I can't, can't I can't vouch for the other one other than recommended to me by mates. But as I know but so yeah we're, we're fucking men the I woke up again this morning. It just occurred to me there, like as you were saying it, and you were just talking about the situation. Like I don't know if I'm alone. I doubt it, but every now and then I just I get shaken from reality, and this real of this kind of wave of surreality comes over me. It's like, did this actually fucking happen? I know. No, it's like it keeps coming. It keeps. It's just every, it's just every now and then I guess get shaken from habit and be like, like this background gone. This this can't be happening. <laughs> so, Still, even though we've been at this for weeks and you've been at this for months, but yeah, as, like, you were, as you were speaking there, it just fucking hit me like a fucking ton of bricks again. Yeah, there was, an, there was a video on around there earlier in the week was, uh, in response to like Leo Radker's announcement that yeah. uh, the father Ted uh, seen. <laughs> <laughs> Ted's like, yeah, you're on the play. oh, Dougal, uh, like, this is actually happening. And Dougal's like, yes, Ted. It's <laughs> <He's> happening <laughs> right now, to us. Sure. Now, <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, how the fuck did we get here? Like, uh, but I, but it, it actually is insane. I was on the phone to my uh, my father there two days ago, and he was saying, um, he was like to me, he was asking because he's real worried because he's had you know a couple of issues with his own health and with his age and stuff. He, he would be in a high risk population, mm. um, and that's one of the reasons I, I haven't gone home to Clarny or anything because I'm trying to just stay away from them because yeah. my parents at risk. And they were, he was saying, um, he was concerned, like, should I? Should I should I leave work? Like I'm really worried. He's real nervous. He's like I'm at work. He's a he's a hotel porter. So obviously he's coming into contact with not just people from the population, but people who have been traveling to stay in Killarney in the hotel, and he's carrying their bags and everything. So he was, he was terrified. Like, and I was like, uh, like it's very weird that it's come to this level. But like you should absolutely not be in work. And he actually made the call yeah. to, to leave work and to go home. And I was like, look, Dad, you know if if the company wants to fucking reprimand you or whatever for making a decision that's solely based on your health like that's not a that doesn't matter in this in this yeah. situation because the alternative is that you could be dead <laughs> like yeah. you know and there it's just weird because where i was having that conversation i was like jesus i'm actually talking to you you know to you dad as if that like your death is actually an imminent like it, it could be happening like that it's actually yeah. like this could be a thing so it's insane yeah. it's a, it's a mad situation. And, and, and that's what, when I was coming on, the, when we were going to have this podcast, I was thinking, I was like, oh, you know, me and Kiran, we're, we're, not, we're not experts about this stuff. Should we even be having conversations about it? And I was like, wait, hold on a second. People are actually going to literally die all around us. Like, <laughs> everyone should be having these conversations. Yeah, 100%, man. But this isn't, 
this I couldn't, I couldn't agree with this from a serenity perspective. The last two mornings in a row, like I've, I've, I've again, even it, how deep I am in it. Like I spent seven hours writing yesterday, two hours the day before, six hours the day before that, another two hours this morning editing this article, and even even this morning and yesterday morning I woke up and the first thought in my head was, surely that was a dream. Like that was the first thought the last two mornings in a row. It's like maybe this, maybe that was all a fucking dream. Like this. Like that's how it's just so. It, this is where it. This 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 is hopefully to a lesser extent. But like you mentioned, you're on about the the surreality of getting shipped off to war. You know that that that, that the blitzkrieg is happening. Do you know what I mean? Like that's 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 it's that yeah, man. I'm the exact same. Like I mentioned, my own parents, like my own dad's older, and my mom older my mom, but he fits into that. because just because of age, thankfully without any other um, risk factors, but. Same thing is like this realization. It's, it's going to be weeks, if not longer, before I can go home. Maybe, maybe longer. Physically, I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to embrace them again. You know when that will occur, and the serenity of that is like it's it still hasn't still hasn't sunk in. Maybe it hasn't been processed. I don't know, but yeah, man, it's. But I, I suppose again, it just comes down to like. I suppose we're not going to go into detail on it because as you said it probably another whole podcast in itself but it just comes down to alright look we're in the fucking shit we're in the trench it's just you know as you used the phrase yesterday just fucking polish your armour and get after it like because that's, that's all we can do is this is where like, there's that Epictetus quote that I, I used in that uh, um, that article I've been writing essentially around the lines of we can't change our external environment or external scenario but what we can change is how we respond and there's a Hans Selye quote that they use as well the father of stress research where he basically said that the, the a painful blow and a passionate kiss can be equally as stressful and then in about a sentence or two later he goes on to say that the absence of stress is death but he's essentially pointing he wrote that in 1976 and what he's pointing this idea that stress is ubiquitous with life the fact that we're alive stress is going to happen but it's up to what we can either interpret it as more more like a painful blow or more like a passionate kiss depending on how we choose to respond so like this is this is this is this is what it is this is the situation that we're in how do we just orient orientate towards the greatest possible good and just and just put one foot in front of the other and keep fucking trucking you know this isn't the first time far from it we're the descendants of people who were able to do that we're the descendants of people who could truck on regardless whether there's whether it's the civil war here whether it was the troubles in the north whether it was the fucking potato famine it's we were the descendants of people that were able to fucking put one foot in front of the other and keep rocking regardless of what went down you know and that's that's all we can do like you know yeah so kind of in summary to everyone listening this is basically as close as we're all going to get to storming the beaches of normandy so take that on board <laughs> You know, yeah. I recognize that like this is actually a good time for, for anyone who thinks that like, uh, I don't matter. Things that I don't do, the things that I do or don't do just don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Like they actually do. And this, yeah. this actually illuminates this. And this is something that Jordan Peterson has talked about so many times that like you always have to view yourself as a node in a network where yeah. everything that you do or don't do affects what it, what happens to everybody else, whether you love them or care about them or not. And this actually basically illuminates that in a literal sense because yeah. 
your, it is actually your responsibility to stop other people getting ill. It's your responsibility to stop the transmission. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting crossover between personal responsibility and collectivism or fighting for the collective good or towards a collective goal. And I think that's something that is really important to keep in mind during these times that like, if you ever thought that what you do or don't do didn't matter, this should be the time that actually illuminates that actually it does. Like it's really, really important. I was outside doing a session a few days ago and a thought occurred to me that I haven't, I never, I haven't explained it or tried to write about it since. And so I don't even know if it's going to make sense as such, but it actually knits together the democracy stuff we're talking that I was ranting about earlier on because fuck communism. Yep. And yeah. <laughs> and also this virus, which is that in a democracy, each person has a vote, one single vote. And unless you're, and, and you go in and you're in, you secretly make the vote, put it in a box. And pretty much everyone does that. And people might talk about it afterwards or whatever, and they might voice their opinions afterwards, and they might voice their opinions before, but it's still only one person, one vote at the end of the day. The difference with this virus at an individual level is that you, ha- you either have, you have the ability to remove not your vote in terms of contributing to the virus, but you either get a chance to, but you potentially can, rem- by following what needs to be done and social distancing, hand washing, stay the fuck away, all, those, all that good stuff that, that's, that the current clinical best practice expertise from around the world is shown to be the way to do things, is you have the ability to not cast an exponential vote that's a lot more than one. So in an actual democracy, people actually vote. So those are things that their behavior as an individual doesn't matter to the grand scheme of things. That's, that obviously isn't the case because democracy functions. Whereas someone who is a node in a network that behaves in such a way that they're essentially, they're casting an exponentially increasing vote by taking unnecessary risks at the expense of others. It's, not, it's way more powerful than, than democracy because it's an exponentially increasing vote. That's what it is in someone behaves and someone takes unnecessary risks at the expense of others. That's what they're doing. It's an exponentially increasing vote. You know, because it's not just one person, one vote anymore. Yeah. It's one person, one exponentially increasing vote. So, um, yeah, that's that. I don't know if that, I hope that makes sense because. Oh, it does. It 100% does. Because like, if you, if you think about the fact, like, obviously it's very easy to kind of brush it off and say that, Oh, but those people would have likely been in contact with all those other people anyway, you know, but if you think about it from the perspective of, let's say, let's say me, right. I'm from Killarney currently living in Cork. Um, so I have a, a big network of people that I might, may have been in contact with here in Cork, right? There's 85 or 90 people in my, in my class in college. So I've been in contact with all those people. I've been in contact with hundreds of other people in UCC directly or indirectly um, at jujitsu in weeks prior. Um, so like there's all these people I've been in contact with. And it could be as simple as me being that one node that travels to Killarney and is the connecting node between yeah. all of those hundreds of people that I've yeah. been in contact with in Cork and all the people that I'm now going to distribute that to in Killarney. So it actually yeah. really illuminates the fact that it's not just one to one to one. And that would have definitely happened. It's the fact that this could be hundreds of people. And then I kind of travel, walk that path and then give it to you were that matchstick that at the moment you pulled away, but yeah. you could be the matchstick that was up like in that image from Nick Christakis. Yeah. But an example of this, and this, 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 this exact concept, 
And the fact that this wasn't grasped at a policy level from the top down is one of the exact reasons that I think individual knowledge needs to get out there. And that's why I think this could be a lot very useful to people, if however many people end up listening to this or watching it, because, for example, the Irish government policy shut the universities. Fine. But why the fuck didn't they say, stay in your college accommodation for at least two weeks? Don't go home. Because you're going from a, an environment where there's shitloads of close personal interaction both in your accommodation, but each person in your each person in your college accommodation is also probably in different courses and all that, and there's all these different interactions. So stay there for a few weeks until there's no symptoms, and maybe even don't go home till you till you've been tested, because they were due to stay here anyway. Whereas think about how many people left UCC, twelve thousand odd students or whatever amount there is or more, twenty thousand odd students, and then and then just dispersed across the country, like a potential like a, like who knows how many of them are, are asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic carriers. And now went from a highly concentrated area where they already were across the country because the advice wasn't given. So this, this, this network, this, this, again, we can't rely solely on top-down advice. We need to act as individuals that are educated and that are aware of these simple principles on network connecting, on attempts to flatten the curve as much as possible by minimizing network connection. Like, the, the, the phrase that I've used in, um, in that article as well was this concept of like, there's one thing people can take away. It's like, break the chain to flatten the curve. So that's what it is. Like, the more chains you can break of connection between networks, the more that, 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 that curve can be flattened. Because it means less people get sick and you're decreasing the probabilities of people getting sick in a short period of time. That way then the curve is going to be longer and flatter thereby decreasing the stress because the limiting factor is the capacity of the health system. So to limit the stress in the health system, to flatten the curve, which gives all of our loved ones the best chance possible at receiving optimal treatment for the situation, whether it even not even be the virus, because during this period, we're going to have loved ones, probably they're going to have heart attacks that are going to end up having an accident that have to go to ER because they end up get, they're doing housework and they get a nail in their fucking foot or something, whatever. This other stuff is going to happen as well. Car pressure is still going to happen, obviously to a much lower extent, hopefully, but, but to break the chain to flatten the curve. That's the, that's, the, that's the primary concept that people need to get that isn't coming from top down, but at an individual, we can behave in such a way that facilitates the overall system. So that's that Nassim Taleb concept of, of uh, in, in the, it's, in the, it's in the individual's benefit even to act in such a way that's of maximum benefit to the system. Um, so there's one last one last quote that jumped to mind. I was chatting to Danny 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 Lennon about it. Um, he mentioned uh, David Sloan Wilson. This he's like a, I think he's an evolutionary psychologist, and he had this phrase: um, "Selfish individuals feed altruistic individuals within groups, but altruistic groups outcompete selfish groups." Nice. And and we need to behave as an altruistic group. You know, we're, we're one um, entity. I might actually, this is a slight, it's not really a tangent, but I might read you out something really short here, just as a point yeah, thing. This is from, the, this is from uh, that article I've written. This is the last, this is point number 20. So the article is like 20 things, 20 things you should know about the Wuhan virus. So num point number 20 is, Global war with a unifying nemesis. And the, what I wrote was, um, we should make no, more, no bones about it. We are 
all of us at war right now against the Wuhan virus. For the first time in known history, all humans are the same enemy. In March 2017, I published an article entitled A Tale of Two Dr. Manhattan, Part 304, Unifying Nemesis. The premise of the ramble was that it was using the Dr. Manhattan character from the Watchmen graphic novel and movie to suggest that it may take something more frightening to humanity than we are to each other to unify us as a species. Essentially, a common foe that we can't defeat individually may force us to put aside our cosmetic differences and unite us. The reality of this virus may facilitate the realization that, in spite of all our knowledge and power, in spite of all we have achieved, we are still very fragile animals who are much more the same than different and much stronger together than apart. In the, late, in the words of the late Carl Sagan, it is clear that the nations of the world can only rise and fall together. It is not a question of one nation winning at the expense of another. We must all help one another or perish together. That's how I close it off. And oh yeah, that's why that's the situation we're in. You know, we gotta. You know, it's a cheesy quote. It's a cheesy thing to say. We're all in this together, but it doesn't make it less true just because it's cheesy. Yeah, it's a, yeah, and it's true. And I think that like that is again why this conversation needed to happen, and why many other conversations like this need to happen. So like I think the one of the things I would encourage people to do, like after this conversation, if you are having dinner table conversations and, and you know, you've got family members saying, ah, don't mind that, that bullshit, you know, that Corona stuff, man, there's only X amount of people that have died and I'm not worried about it. I'm young and fit. Cause there are many people like that. Um, yeah. Go the extra mile to try and explain it to them because it actually is beneficial for you, beneficial for them and beneficial for everyone um, around you because it is effectively a, a common uh, a common enemy um, yeah. in, the, in this case so so yeah i think that would close out everything that we have discussed we'll undoubtedly get you on again because there's loads more things i want to chat about but for the end of this conversation you obviously mentioned the article that you are writing so i'll probably share that on my instagram story anyway once you do post it up so if people follow me they can get it there but where can people find out more about you and the work that you do if they're interested in exploring more of what kiran has to offer uh, cheers, man. Um, so, and it, you mentioned Instagram there. That's probably that's the media platform that I've been most. And I remember the last time I logged into Twitter, but Instagram will be most active, I suppose. And my handle for both Instagram and Twitter is at CT Quarrelsome, which stands for Kiran the Quarrelsome. And uh, that's a different story for another day, but it's got a gas, gas story behind it. But, uh, and then on the, the website I have is quarrelsomelife.com. You can name the website. Um, so they're probably the best places and then they to contact me. And uh, if anyone has any, any other contact points, they're probably the best. And then I suppose if people need to reach me in a more detailed way or, or whatever, my email address, if they don't use social media, my email address is kiran at sigmanutrition.com. Um, so, so I think they're probably the best spots. And the article... I don't know when this is going to go out, but today, today is the 17th, isn't it? Today's Paddy's Day, sure. Paddy's Day. So today I'm going to publish it. I'm going to finish the edits and it'll be published this evening. So I got back a made of mine proof, did a lot of proofreading for me, and uh, which I owe her one, but I don't know when I get a chance to buy her a, a point as a, as a thank you, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but uh, so that without the season anyway, most likely I get a chance to get it finished and 
studio, but uh, I just wanted to put together this compendium of information, just chuck, because I've been, like yourself, I was saying, following this for a while, and I wanted to just chuck a load of stuff together, explaining on a surface level, while including a load of different links for further reading and understanding to podcasts, medical journal articles, newspaper articles, and I, it's, it's like 5,000 odd word, just massive collection, essentially, of small little, um, of, of 20 different points in relation to this situation. That, um, and again, it's not medical advice, it's just a compendium of, of uh, touching on stuff from a surface level so people can go deeper then if they decide to follow through and go down each rabbit hole individually. So I decided to just, because again, and a major stimulus for this from a reality perspective is I wanted to get this out quickly. So I was hustling for the last few days to get this done because I'm aware that I may very well end up being a pre-symptomatic carrier myself and I won't get a chance to, to put out anything if I get sick. So I'm like, I need to fucking hustle to put shit out. That may be of use in case I reach a stage where I'm not going to be able to put shit out for a while or worst case scenario ever again, <laughs> which is a fucking harsh reality of this situation. You know, so, uh, yeah, I man, I suppose that's, that's, I don't know if there's, any, if there's any more to say other than that, but I appreciate you having me on and I enjoyed the, the conversation and for, uh, and for allowing me to vent and uh, rant a little bit. Yeah, and as, as, as it says on your arm, I believe, a good way to close out this podcast is Memento Mori. It's an appropriate time yeah. for such a <laughs> Yeah. 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 Is, death is a very real possibility be preparing for this one um, but yeah no guys thanks a million for listening if you did get this far this has been a long conversation I think probably about two hours but hopefully there is something that you can take away from this um, as we kind of said from the outset one of the purposes of having this discussion um, was so that you can start to think about these problems in a way that is more relatable or generalizable or maybe to overcome some of the the thought viruses that could stop you from getting it because sometimes like while I'm a big fan of referring to the CDC and just plain old medical statistics to try and understand this stuff, it doesn't always click with people. And I think that is one of the issues sometimes with pub public health communication is that like one way of delivering information doesn't always relate with everyone. Um, so trying to kind of make it a little bit different, have different types of conversations is a good way of uh, distributing this information for people. But with all of that said, if you're looking for actual advice, I would refer you once again, the HSE are putting out advice for people, whether it be, oh, how should I actually wash my hands? Most people don't, don't exactly know like, how to actually do that. And the CDC, the World Health Organization, that's where you go for all your actual reliability. The European CDC have been putting out really good shit as well. The ECDC, they've been putting out these reports on a regular basis on the situation in Europe, which has been, they're really good sources as well. That's a really good source as well, from what I've seen so far. Yeah, and there's a good website as well with like lots of different graphs and breakdowns on um, worldometer or worldometer.com. Although it supposedly had a glitch, uh, I think last night or the night before, and it said there was negative 289,000 deaths or something. And I was like, fuck, what does that mean? Did we just... Like, did we all just like metastasize? And there's all these little Wuhan babies running around the place or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> a lot of births from coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, thanks a million, guys. And we'll catch up with you in the next episode when we get back to the normal all fitness stuff. Nice.